Hi everyone, today I thought I might chat about the thing I almost devoted my PhD to studying. Almost. It affects almost 48 million people worldwide. Almost. And <laughs> with a bit over half living in low and middle income countries. And it's projected to affect almost 76 million people in less than 15 years. Almost. And 136 million by 2050. I'm talking about dementia, the most common cause of which being Alzheimer's, which accounts for between 60 to 80% of dementia. Glad to be here with you, Ian. I'm drinking coffee. Ian's drinking tea. (laughs) So uh, let's get the stupid questions out of the way first. What exactly is dementia and what is Alzheimer's and why are they different? Okay, so dementia is basically just an umbrella term for a set of symptoms that include reduced memory, altered judgment as well as impaired language and motor skills. It essentially impairs all aspects of cognition and non-cognitive domains. And while Alzheimer's is the most common, well-known, and well-studied cause of dementia, there are a variety of other potential causes of dementia that include things you might have heard of, like Lewy body dementia, or vascular dementia, post-stroke dementia, uh, frontotemporal dementia, and even like the later stages of Parkinson's disease will be associated with symptoms of dementia. And so there aren't any cures for this, right? Even though so many people are affected by this condition. Right. Unfortunately, the medications that clinical science has anticipated would be game changers have fallen short in human trials. And all treatments currently used to treat Alzheimer's and dementia are basically palliative, treating only symptoms and not the underlying problem. There are, however, several treatment strategies that are being explored that might attack the underlying etiology of Alzheimer's. And what are some of these treatments and drugs? Uh, For example, if I were a loved one were to come down with Alzheimer's, what are the types of medications we would be prescribed? So for the most part, the drugs that are currently used fall into two general buckets. Those that revolve around altering how the neurotransmitter acetylcholine is handled by neurons, or those that alter how one of the receptors for the neurotransmitter glutamate, which is called the NMDA receptor, is activated. Acetylcholine-altering drugs include uh, donepezil, galantamine, rivastigmine, And what they do is inhibit the enzymes that recognize and digest acetylcholine into its constituent parts. The brand names for these drugs are things like Aricept, Razadine, and Exelon. The main NMDA receptor targeting drug is called Memantine. And sometimes these two categories can be combined, but ultimately they don't target the underlying problem, which is why they can only slow the progression of the cognitive decline and not actually cure the condition. So why don't these drugs just target the main problem? And what is the main problem? Well, the short answer is we don't actually know what's causing Alzheimer's, despite decades of research. It's just much more complex than scientists ever expected. But we do know a lot about it, right? I mean, I've heard you uh, talk in your periscopes about two main features of Alzheimer's, amyloid beta plaques and neurofibrillary tangles. That's right. Yeah, well done. So, So those are the two features of Alzheimer's disease that are the main thing that separate it from other neurodegenerative diseases. And I've heard you describe them as aggregates, Um, but how do they get there? How do they aggregate? What do they normally do before they become problems? Right, so that's a great question. It's like the central question. And before we dive into what we think is going on here, I'd like to talk a a little bit about what I think is a misunderstanding of how the brain and body work. Uh, To be short, they're not very well organized. They're chaotic, and there are proteins that have been components of animal nervous systems for hundreds of thousands of years that don't necessarily have one specific function, but participate in a very wide variety of processes. 
part of the reason the system could get so complex is because we had proteins that were capable of a variety of functions instead of just one. So oftentimes when we see animations depicting how things work in cells, everything seems to be rather orderly and distinct. But the reality is that many interactions occur somewhat randomly. Like a bunch of proteins and molecules are bumping into each other almost randomly. And sometimes they encounter a protein or molecule that has some attractive force and boom, some reaction might occur. Or the growth of skeletons of axons called microtubules might occur. This is true in neurons, during gene expression, during neurotransmitter syntheses, and so on. There's an interesting theory that various forms of dementia arise from inevitable outcomes of biochemical pathways that were necessary to enable us to evolve such complex nervous systems early on, and just weren't really problems until we started to live for much longer periods. So when it comes to amyloid beta, as is the case with many specific proteins and molecules in the brain, its particular role is a bit uncertain. It comes from a membrane protein that's expressed in more than just neurons called the amyloid precursor protein, or APP. The amyloid precursor protein seems to be a very evolutionary ancient component of animal physiology, present in everything from nematodes and flies to mice and people. It has a bunch of segments, or domains, that can be involved in different physiological processes. Enzymes called beta and gamma secretase find amyloid precursor protein and slice it up into specific sizes, one of those slices being amyloid beta. Think of a big puzzle, and think of one long line of connected puzzle pieces. Only certain other puzzle pieces will be able to fit along specific regions of the connected line. So a lot like finding the right puzzle piece to attach the right location along that string of puzzle pieces, these enzymes recognize specific regions of the amyloid precursor protein, and they cut at those spots, slicing the precursor into those segments. And so one of the theories for how these aggregates grow is that there's an error in those enzymes, and they cleave the wrong location of the precursor protein. And so some of the new potential strategies to treat Alzheimer's disease revolve around targeting these specific enzymes and altering the way they interact with amyloid precursor protein to prevent amyloid beta from ever accumulating. So we all have amyloid precursor protein, and we all have amyloid beta in our brains. That's right. But we don't know what it does or... What? <laughs> right. So yeah, studying its function has been like way more difficult than scientists expected. So we have a great understanding of mouse genetics and many of the components of our body and nervous system is present in mice. So we can evaluate the ramifications of removing a specific component of the nervous system for behavior and cognition by editing their genome. And so usually if we remove a component of the nervous system that's important, there are measurable changes in cognition or behavior. Like they learn to navigate a maze more slowly or they're less interested in hedonic pleasure, like sugar, or they're less social. But when amyloid beta is removed, there doesn't seem to be a significant change in these processes. It does, however, seem to be involved in a wide range of processes, including regulating cholesterol transport in neurons, which can influence how rigid the membranes or like walls of neurons are, or activation of enzymes that interact with a range of other processes in neurons. And even it might influence gene expression or transcription. And an additional challenge that has like plagued Alzheimer's researchers is the fact that it's been super hard to generate a mouse model of the disease. For whatever reason, it's been very difficult to generate a mouse that exhibits both amyloid beta plaques and neurofibrillary tangles at the same time. Okay, so it seems to do all of these background things in the brain. And how does it start to accumulate? Well, again, unfortunately, this isn't completely understood. Uh, amyloid beta has been shown to have something like an unspecific structure. It's wiggly. So keep in mind what a protein is. It's just a string of amino acids, which are just complex molecules that are connected together. There are areas of these molecules that are attracted and repulsed to and from each other. And these forces make that string snap into certain shapes and structures. 
So, depending on which amino acids are present, you can get a huge variety of 3D structures. Well, when it comes to amyloid beta, there doesn't seem to be a specific 3D structure. Instead, there are a variety of potential structures. And so this might be why it can form aggregates in the first place. Did you ever do that experiment as a kid where you put a ton of salt into some water and tie a string around a pencil and dangle that string in the salt water? What happens is that the salt climbs up the string as the water evaporates. So you get to see what a salt crystal looks like as the water evaporates. The sodium and chloride ions collect together because they have opposite charges. And as the water evaporates away, they're left behind. As a result, the crystal grows. So think of the growth of these aggregates in a similar way. You start with a mistakenly cleaved amyloid beta with sticky ends. As more and more of these mistakenly cleaved amyloid beta fragments continue to be generated, they're attracted to each other. So over time, you get the growth of amyloid beta aggregates. If you ever heard of a prion infection, it's pretty similar to that. Right now, I'm envisioning lots of octopuses <laughs> that stick to each other, that can take different shapes, that have, you know, little sticky puckers and... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's not a bad model, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay. So what is the big deal um, about these aggregates? I can understand that having a bunch of gunk around the brain is a problem, but why? Yeah, great question. And again, we're like not entirely sure. We think a likely mechanism is by generating reactive oxygen species. And these molecules are able to disrupt a variety of neurophysiological processes, like the ability to generate ATP or transporting neurotransmitters. And our brains have systems to accommodate this kind of mistake, believe it or not. And amyloid beta is found in the brains of healthy people. So some of this disruption can probably be accommodated by the brain, but there's probably a threshold of aggregation beyond which our brain can no longer compensate. As a result, the aggregation process probably starts many, many years before any symptoms are observed. Okay, so that's amyloid beta plaques. What about neurofibrillary tangles? Right, so neurofibrillary tangles are actually quite similar, but they are aggregates of a different protein called tau. And so tau is a protein that helps keep the neuronal skeletal system in place by stabilizing microtubules. In particular, they seem to keep the microtubules of axons, the cables neurons send out to communicate with one another, stable. So it's a very prevalent protein in our nervous system. Again, keep that chaotic image of protein interactions in mind. The skeletons of axons need to grow and shrink dynamically. And microtubules are like the scaffolding of that process. As a little single units of microtubules, called monomers basically, bump into each other, they find complementary ends of each other, again, like a growing line of puzzle pieces. Well, tau is something that helps everything stay in the right place. Like many proteins, for it to do its job, a chemical structure called a phosphoryl group needs to be attached to the structure of the protein. This happens all over the place, to receptors, enzymes, ion channels, and to tau as well. Well, the prevailing theory for why tau sometimes starts to aggregate in the wrong way, in the wrong place in neurons, is that too many phosphoryl groups end up decorating tau proteins, called hyperphosphorylation. And this makes them exceptionally sticky, so they start to grow in much the same way as amyloid beta plaques. And again, systems in the brain can compensate for some of these errors, but beyond a certain point, circuits are so damaged that you start to see degradation of cognition. Okay, so it's obviously really complicated, uh, but why can't we just make a drug or something to target these aggregates and get rid of them, break them up? Of course, that's like the jillion dollar question. There are a variety of strategies that are being explored right now. So as of 2015, there are pharmacological, meaning classic drugs with specific receptor targets, immunological, like antibodies that target amyloid beta plaques and tau tangles, as well as vaccines against both, small molecule therapeutics to inhibit secretase activity or activate ubiquitin proteasome recognition of aggregates. 
And some of these strategies have been explored in preclinical animal models of Alzheimer's, while others have been tried to bit in humans. And while it's encouraging that so many avenues are being explored, it's still not clear which might be effective. Also, lifestyle interventions are being explored, like altering diet and nutrition and exercise routines, as well as social interactions. Has anything been encouraging in the lifestyle treatment approaches? I think those are probably the easiest for people to implement to prevent Alzheimer's. Yeah, you're probably right. And when it comes to diet, it turns out that diets high in trans-saturated fats, highly refined sugars, and low in polyunsaturated fats are associated with Alzheimer's. Most of these studies, though, are purely correlative, and the effects of diet on already existing disease isn't well characterized. And it's important to note that as the disease progresses, just having a patient with Alzheimer's consume calories at all can be quite a challenge. Regardless, uh, the research that has been done is what's prompted the strong advocacy of the Mediterranean diet or the MIND diet. Basically, this diet focuses on consuming green leafy veggies, berries, beans, nuts, fish, poultry, olive oil, and the occasional red wine, and avoiding butter, cheese, pastries, and candy, fried foods, and red meats. And another dietary nutrient that's received a lot of positive attention is curcumin, which is found in turmeric, uh, which but, is- an, But not in cumin. But not, right, but not in cumin. And it's an important spice that's used in curry. Its mechanism in reducing the incidences of Alzheimer's isn't well understood, but there seems to be some benefit there. Like there's a strangely low prevalence of Alzheimer's disease in India, for example, where a lot of turmeric is consumed. And when it comes to exercise, the results haven't suggested a significant effect on preventing Alzheimer's, but some scientists speculate that perhaps in combination with other lifestyle interventions like nutrition, it can contribute to overall benefits. Okay, well, all this sounds a little bleak. <laughs> uh, it seems like I read headlines and articles all the time about major breakthroughs in Alzheimer's research. So why isn't there a cure yet, and do you think there will ever be a cure? Right, it's proven ex to be extremely elusive to understand and treat. And kind of like cancer, it seems to arise from the fact that the evolutionary pressure to maintain cognitive health well beyond reproductive age only recently emerged. So every now and then, a discovery that's definitely scientifically important can get stretched a bit to be interpreted as a cure when it's really just an important step towards a cure. And so when thinking about dementia and Alzheimer's, it's important to keep in mind that the proteins and structures of our brain are fairly ancient and not necessarily adapted to living as long as we're able to now. But one of the coolest things about the brain is that we're capable of solving almost any problem. And given that this disease obeys the laws of physics, chemistry, and biology, we will figure out a way to recognize and prevent it. We didn't get to discuss some of the work in genetics to try and reveal risk factors that might enable us to predict who may or may not develop Alzheimer's, but that's a subject for another time. There's a lot of really compelling research going on there. Also, we could go much, much deeper in discussing each of those treatment strategies. There's a good reason and a bunch of evidence to support exploring everything from immunotherapies to enzyme inhibitors, but those are very deep rabbit holes and probably topics for another time. And another cup of coffee. <laughs> right. Yeah, so, and regardless, I mean, I wouldn't be too surprised if by the next time we discuss Alzheimer's, a landmark discovery comes out that reveals specific constellation of genetic mutations that cause Alzheimer's, enabling us to prevent the disease from ever even cropping up in the first place. So if we got rid of brains, we would get rid of Alzheimer's. That's just right. You're basically like a doctor. You should be on Dr. Oz. 